Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. Bledsoe, five seconds. Bledsoe with three. Bledsoe with one. Got to put it up for the game. Yeah! He did it! Seven tenths of a second. No timeouts for the Grizzlies. Lock for Gasol. Ross, Ross, oh my goodness gracious, and we're going to overtime. Patterson lets it fly, in time! Two seconds left, KD to end the half, Go! Have you guys in your mind you've made that shot over and over again? Yeah. When I played basketball as a kid, I mean, three, two, one, air ball. Oh, dang it. In my mind, it always worked out. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about getting in the game week two. And here's the thought I want to leave or want to set us with, and that is this it takes a team to win. It takes a team to win. You see that one guy at the last moment, he makes the shot. Everybody's tackling him and giving him high fives, and he's the hero of that moment. But how many of you guys know he didn't win the game? The game wasn't won right then. The game, there was a lot of plays that happened before then. There was a lot of, there's a whole lot of other players. There's coaches, there's assistant coaches, there's water boys, there's whatever it is, you know. But it takes all these people to win the game. So for every special, amazing play that happens, there's a team behind it. Have you guys remember the uh, 2015 World Series with the Royals? And uh, what, it's like one of the most important plays of that whole series was, was what? Hosmer stealing home plate, home plate, right, and, and scoring that. Have you guys remember that? You watched that when it actually happened? But Hosmer didn't win the game. It was all the players that contributed to that win. It took all those players. I don't know what baseball people do. I don't know baseball. It took people. They do stuff. I don't know what they do in baseball, but they want. It takes a lot of them. And, and so, but it wasn't that one moment. It, it was the accumulation of all those moments. There's a uh, famous play in football that is simply just called the catch, how many of you guys have heard of the catch? Joe Montana, uh, the time is ticking out, and and uh, and he drops back, and his primary player isn't his primary receiver isn't available, and so the Cowboys will tell you to this day that he tried to chuck it out of the end zone just to throw the ball away. But meanwhile, what was happening is this guy jumps up and catches the ball, and he's being guarded by he was a mismatch. He's being guarded by what they this guy is called Two Tall Jones. He was six foot nine. There's no way he he should have been able to get this catch, but he jumped. And as far and as high as he ever did in his life, and with a fingertip catch, he made this play. Now, you guys know, even though that was an amazing play, that wasn't what won the game. It was all of them together getting him to that one point, and Joe Montana throw, it took so many different people to make the play. You could even look at, at something like, like cycling or something like Lance Armstrong. You know, he's just a guy with a bicycle. And how many things did he win? How many Tour de France's did he win? Over and over and over again. But it's not just a guy on a bicycle, is it? I mean, it takes like doctors to falsify reports. It takes bribes. Uh, it takes a lot of team to win that. It takes a lot of people. Yeah, I worked that one out, didn't I? All right. Uh, so it's, the, it's, it's not the buzzer beater, even though we, we love that. It's not the buzzer beater that wins the game. It's all these other things. It, it, it's, it's everything and everybody before that. 
Now, uh, years ago, uh, we were at Thanksgiving dinner. How many of you guys love Thanksgiving? I mean, just you get to eat every. We, we eat pie at our Thanksgiving dinner, and I don't just mean pie. I mean, like, pies. And I don't mean everybody eats pies collectively. I mean, like, individually, you eat pies because my mom makes so many pies. And so uh, one year, uh, I noticed that the pies had spots on them. They were spotted pumpkin pies. And I was, we'd never seen spotted pumpkin pies around our house before. We'd always had unspotted pies. And so I was wondering, what is the world with the, what's up with these spotted pies? And so I go and ask my mom. I said, Mom, the pies are spotted. We normally don't have spotted pies. We normally have unspotted pies. We have spotted pies. What's up with the spotted pies? And she said, I didn't do anything different. And we kept pushing her on it and pushing her on it. And finally, she figured out that when we were little, they didn't have so much money. And she, she would substitute some of the ingredients with cinnamon or something else. And now she was adding some of those back in and whatever, for whatever reason, now we had spotted pies. Now, why do I say that? Because you normally don't think about the ingredients of something until there's a reason to think about them. You normally don't think about the individual ingredients until it affects the whole, okay? Uh, let me give you another example. And I've shared this before, but it's, indel- it's, it's marked on my mind forever. How many of you guys love a good chocolate chip cookie? I mean, like the perfect chocolate chip cookie. Just the right size, just the right texture, just the right amount of chocolate chips in there. And you, I, I had this one time, this perfect heavenly chocolate chip cookie experience. I ate this whole thing. And what do you do after you have a chocolate chip cookie? What do you need next? Exactly. Another one. I like that. Whoever said that? Uh, I needed an ice-cold glass of chocolate milk, and so I prepared an ice-cold glass of of milk, and and, and I like the perfect combinations with things. How many of you guys do you have to pair up your food just right? And I had ate just the right amount of cookie, and I had just the right amount of milk, and so I start chugging this cold milk down. I'm chugging all the way through it, and I can just chug it, and I get three-quarters of the way down, and I realize that it's sour milk. And I had just been basically chugging cottage cheese down my throat after this cookie. Now, again, the ingredients don't seem that important until they all of a sudden become incredibly relevant. Now, uh, today we're going to be looking at something where uh, it seems at first very insignificant. In fact, you might even just skip over it thinking it doesn't really affect anything. And what I'm talking about is how many of you guys have done this in your Bible? You read through the Bible. Maybe you've got, you go into like Genesis or you're in like Second Chronicles or something. And all of a sudden there's this list of names, like endless names, endless names in your Bible reading program. How many of you guys have experienced this before? And how many of you guys are like me? And most of the time you just start saying, Hezariah, and I'm done. How many of you guys just skip over it? You just go on. Okay. The rest of you guys are liars. You guys, or you don't read your Bible at all. I don't know. But it it seems insignificant. Like, God, why did you put all these names in here? And so I want to look at the book of Colossians. It only has four chapters. And yet it seems like Paul takes an exorbitant amount of time to list off a bunch of names at the end of this short letter. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I believe it's because it takes a team to win the game. Paul is the guy who's shooting the buzzer beater shot, but he begins to list off and he says, these are all the people that go into making this thing happen. And so I want to read this passage of scripture and list off all these names, and then we're going to dig into it and see what God has to say to us this morning through it. Colossians chapter 4. Verse 7. And by the way, I'm going to pronounce these names, um, and I'm probably not going to pronounce them right, but the guys who I'm talking about are dead, so they can't correct me, so we're just going to roll with it, all right? Uh, Tychicus will tell, and by the way, you are not going to do any better. So Tychicus will tell you about all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. With him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among whom my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear, wit- bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha, the church in her house, and When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see to you that you fulfill the ministry that I've received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. How many of you guys just got a lot of spiritual food out of that one? You're just like soaking it up and meditating on it. Spiritual food. You're putting it on refrigerator verses. Let me dig into that because here's what I think what's going on. Paul lists these names. And we don't know very much about it. It seems like an end note, a footnote. It seems insignificant. It seems irrelevant. And so I want to take you through who these guys are because it takes a team to win the game. And I want to take you through who these guys are. Let's start off with Tychicus. He was a faithful friend. He was a loyal representative of Paul. Wherever he would send this guy, he, Paul knew that he would faithfully represent him. Uh, in fact, he was so loyal and Paul trusted this guy so much that he was entrusted with the task of delivering the letters or the book of Ephesians and Colossians. So if he had not been faithful, if he had been lazy, if he had been distracted, if he wasn't trustworthy, we may not have today the richness that comes out of the book of Ephesians, and we would not have the richness that comes out of the book of Colossians because this guy was an important piece to the puzzle. And yet he just seems like an afterthought, just written in. We don't know much about him. He had an incredible, he was an incredible role player on the team. Onesimus, he was actually a runaway slave. He'd escaped slavery, and he ran away. In fact, the whole book of Philemon, is Paul writing to Philemon, who was the owner of Onesimus, but now he's become a brother in the Lord. But Onesimus ran away. He escaped this daring adventure. And somewhere along the way, he meets this guy named Paul. And Paul begins to tell him about Jesus, how Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, how he laid down his life for, the, for his sins, and how he rose from the dead, and now he has victory over sin, and how, how, how the resurrection happened, and how if he would put his faith in him, that he could receive grace for all of his sins, and that even though he felt like he had been in chains on the inside, and now he's free, he could experience a whole new freedom and be free on the inside, even if he was chained on the outside. And Onesimus, he came to, to faith in Christ, and his life was changed, and now he was hanging out with Paul, but Onesimus there's something special about this guy. He wanted to make things right because according to the law, he had broke the law. And according to the law, he needed to make things right. He was a runaway slave. And so he was at the risk of his own life because Philemon, according to the law of the day, he could have killed Onesimus and had him put to death for running away that he wanted to go back and to make things right. And so Paul, the whole book of Philemon is Paul pleading with Philemon saying, receive him as a brother. He wants to do what's right, even at the risk of his own life. This guy was an amazing dude. This guy, it's just an afterthought seemingly in scripture. Aristarchus, this guy, I love this guy. This guy's even better, I think. 
Aristarchus, he was one of the guys in Acts chapter 19. There's a big old ruckus that gets, gets started because Paul came into town and began to preach against idols. This town was famous for these little idols, so much so that there was a whole economy based on this where they would make little figurines and idols to be sold to worship this goddess, Diana. And so uh, they, when Paul came in and he started preaching Christ, people stopped worshiping the idols and the whole economy that began to crash that these guys were selling false idols and so they were upset. And so they start to whip people up into a fury. They start to get people all against Paul, basically protesters. I'm sure they were turning the cars over, lighting stuff on fire. How many of you guys know we don't know anything about that these days, about protests or anything like that? That's what was happening in Acts chapter 19. And they whip them up into this frenzy, and they all go into this big arena that would seat like 20,000 people, and they're all there. Some of them don't even know why they're there. They're just like, yeah, it's a party. Let's burn stuff. You know, who's, who's on, who do we need to get? You know, and, and so it was such a dangerous atmosphere that the saints would not let Paul even go in there. But Aristarchus was like, I'm going in. And he went in, and he, at the risk of his own life, he was one of the guys that was in the midst of all of this. He was also a guy that volunteered to go on the ship to Rome, risking prison like Paul, with Paul, and the ship crashed. Remember the ship crashed that in, in Acts, uh, later on in the book of Acts, where the ship falls apart? He was willing, he stuck with Paul all the way to the end. This guy was an amazing dude. He was such a faithful, loyal supporter of Paul. Then we have Mark. Some of you guys might know him as John Mark because in the book of Acts, uh, Barnabas and Paul and John Mark went on a missionary journey. They went on a missionary trip and, and just basically a missions trip. And somewhere along the way, John Mark gets cold feet once they get out there. He's like, I, I want to go home. He's a mama's boy, whatever he is. I don't know. But he gets cold feet. He doesn't want to go anymore. So he takes off and he deserts them. Well, Paul was upset about this. So the next time they're getting ready to do a missions trip, uh, Barnabas is going, Paul's going, and John Mark says, I'll go. And Paul says, no way. Last time, you mama's boy, you took off, you couldn't handle it, couldn't take the heat. There is no way you're going to come along with us. But Barnabas says, well, Paul, wait, wait a minute. Remember when nobody would accept you? Remember when no one would, would accept you? And I put my arm around you and I said, come on, let's go, let's go. He's like, that's what I want to do with John Mark. And, and so Paul was having nothing of it, though. And so Barnabas and John Mark went away, one way and Paul went another way. And you think that's the end of the story, but it's not the end of the story. How do I know? Because he's mentioned right here in a very positive light by Paul. He's also mentioned in, in 2 Timothy, I believe, in one of the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he said this, bring John Mark to me because he's useful to my ministry. So somewhere along the way, Paul and John Mark learned how to reconcile. What an important example for us as believers to see this little story just captured in here, that you can have disagreements, you can have great disagreements, but at the end of the day, it's about fixing those things and getting on the same page. And it's, it's just an afterthought here, but it's so rich and so deep. Justice, he was a, a receptive Jew. We know that, that he was of the circumcision. So he was a Jew that converted to Christianity. Why is that important? Because culturally, he had to go and throw away everything that was a part of his culture and to stick out and to go to this way called the way of Jesus Christ. And it was a dangerous place. It was, he, had, he basically had to forsake everything else. And he was at the risk of his own life because they were being martyred at that time. And he gave it all up. How, how many of you guys know, again, what a great example for us that sometimes we have to push away our culture and go all the way with Jesus. And that was what this story represents. This one little name 
represents that. Epaphras is a guy who met God, had such a life-changing encounter with God that he eventually went on to plant many different churches, basically became a bishop over many different churches, overseeing all of them, became a great man in the faith. Luke, we've heard the name of Luke because there's a book called the Gospel of Luke, right? And Luke wrote that letter, or wrote that book, and he wrote the book of Acts as well. Basically, by sheer volume, basically half of the New Testament was written by Luke. And Luke, he used his, his uh, practical gifts of being a physician for the kingdom of God, and he followed Paul all the way to the end, and he wrote about it the whole way. We wouldn't know most of what happened in the early church had it not been for this one name, the name, this guy named Luke, an incredible member of the team. What about Demas? At the time of this writing, Demas was very right on, very loyal, but later on we know from other writings in Scripture that Demas walked away from the faith. He walked away from Paul. And Paul had to experience this heartbreak of pouring your life into somebody and seeing them just walk away and being betrayed. How many of you guys have ever felt that before? And it's represented right here in this story. And sometimes we're not all going to bat, you know, all the way. We're not going to have 100% of all the field goals go through, but, but uh, you, you have to work through that, and that happens on a team. Nympha, some people will say this is a guy. Some people say this is a girl. Nonetheless, uh, I, I believe it was a her, so uh, she was very wealthy, had a house large enough to be able to have a church in it, and she was also willing to sacrifice whatever she had for the cause of Christ. And so much that she became a target for other people uh, as she became, her house became a church. It would have been a big target in those days. Archippus, according to this scripture right here, we know that he was called by God. He was encouraged to stir up the gift that was in him, very much similar to Timothy. We have to assume that he was in the same role as Timothy because Paul is speaking to him with the same language. And so I want to do that for us today. I want us to stir up the gift within us. I want you to understand that it takes a team to win the game. It's not just a person on the stage. It's not just the person who makes the buzzer beater shot, but it takes a team to win the game. And God has put all of us on a team. And, and we have some of those names here, maybe some of those things that you just see a name. Maybe you just see somebody working back in the kids' ministry. We got Ben and Lydia here who have been serving since day one back in the kids' ministry. You may not know. It may seem like a little afterthought to you, but it's, it's day after day, year after year, for a decade. Now it'll be decades going into this that it just seems like a, a name on, on the website or something, but there's a whole story behind that. Leonard, same way, faithful every single. I mean, he's at every single service. And nobody makes him do that. Nobody pays him to do that. He just faithfully begins to serve over and over again. We got people back in the early childhood watching our kids right now who it, it may not seem very significant to you. It just seems like a name just on a page, just on a roster, but they are fulfilling their ministry and serving us so that we can be in here and be encouraged by the Word of God and encourage one another. I could go on and on. Chris, I think, is involved in like seven different ministries throughout, and we've got people that are involved in so many different ministries, filling all these different gaps everywhere because they are part of the team and they're willing to lay it all on the line. And you don't know all of these names, but I want you to know that it takes a team to win the game. You're looking at me. I'm, I'm the I'm not, I may be a guy that you see me shoot a shot or something like that, but I'm telling you, it's not because of me that the game gets won. It's because we are all in the game. Can somebody say amen? You guys know everybody has a part in the play, to play in this game. That's right. So let me just say it this way. The day of the superstar pastor is long gone. It was never biblical for that to happen. Never biblical. So let me tell you, every single person here has a call. Every single person here has a call. Every one of us has a call. And you're responsible for feeding that call. Let me tell you, though, I think we have a, a, a wrong thinking that we still have to constantly work out. And that's why I challenge it every time I have an opportunity. My job as a pastor of this church is to equip you for ministry. 
My job as a believer is to do ministry. My job as a pastor is to equip only. And I think so many times we slip into this idea that, well, you're the pastor, you're doing the ministry, you're, we, you know, you're getting paid to do the ministry, this is your full-time job, you're full-time. No, that's never how God intended. He said that my job as a pastor is to equip us to do ministry, to encourage us, to be inspired to do ministry. As a believer, I minister. And as a believer, you minister. As a pastor, I equip only. All right, so uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 paints the picture pretty clear. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, that's what makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part does its share, when each part gets in the game, let this rest down in your spirit for just a second. God has masterfully designed the church so that nobody would have everything they needed. That not one person would have everything they needed. God masterfully designed the church so that no one would have everything they needed. He designed it so that everyone would have something to give. So that when everyone begins to give, everyone is completed in the whole. God masterfully designed the church so that not one person, that's why we've got to do away with this lie that I can be an individual Christian. Listen, if you're out on your own, you are not the church. You are only the church collectively. You may be sent out from this place to represent the church or to be the church, but you're only the church collectively. You're only the church connectedly. You are only the church when you're connected to the body. That's it. And I think there's a, a, a mistake and a, and a false uh, doctrine even out there that would say, well, I'm just the church. I'm an individual Christian. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. As individuals, yes, we have a relationship with God that we are priests before God. We can do all. Yes, we have an individual relationship with God, but we represent the church and we are the church, not just gathered here. Yes, when we go out, but never alone because each part is connected. Each part's connected. All right, so even though you might say, well, I want to get in the game, it's not just enough to get in the game and be a part. You have to have the right culture about you. I call it the locker room culture. It doesn't matter how good you are on the field. It doesn't matter how much ability you have on the field or how talented you are or how gifted you are or what your calling is. It doesn't matter how much you can knock it out of the park when you start serving or you start doing your thing. None of that matters if you don't have a good locker room culture. Because what happens in sports, you may have a superstar, but in the locker room, they're egotistical and they're like, it's all about me. It'll break up that team. And the same is true in the body of Christ. And so we have to have a culture about us. And here's what I want you to know. Every single person here already has a culture about you. It could be, you don't even have to be intentional, but you do have a culture. It may be a good culture. It may be a bad culture. It may be a negative culture. It may be a positive culture, but you have one. But here's the good news. You can be intentional about setting what your culture is. Maybe you haven't been intentional about it, but now you can be. And so what would be some of the things that might be intentionally a good culture that we ought to have in the locker room, not out serving, but just in our DNA, in our hearts? I want to share some thoughts, some of what came from a conference I, came, I went to this week, uh, fill in some of the gaps with some things God was showing me this week. But let me give you three quick things that I believe should be part of our culture in the locker room that makes up who we are as a team. The first one is this, a culture of faithfulness. As much as we would love for it to be something more flashy than this, as much as we maybe don't like that word of faithfulness, it is what the Bible celebrates. 
It is what God celebrates. He celebrates faithfulness. It pops up all over the time, all over. It doesn't matter how much of a superstar you are. He represents, he, he values faithfulness. You have to have a culture of faith, faithfulness. Matthew chapter 25 represents this in verse 14. It says, for it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he trusted to them his property. So to one, he gave five talents. To one guy, he gave two talents. To another guy, he gave one talent. Now, this is very key. According to their ability. So in other words, he looked at these guys. He's like, this guy can handle five talents. I'll give five talents to him. This guy, not so much. He can do two, two talents. This guy, he's a one-talent guy. But he gave it to him according to their ability. And it says, now after a long time. That's so key, after a long time. Because that is faithfulness. Faithfulness requires a long time. You cannot be faithful in a moment. You cannot be faithful attending one service. You cannot be faithfully serving once. Faithfulness always happens after a long time. You will never be deemed as faithful until the after a long time happens. Because faithfulness requires an after a long time. And so he gives them each to their ability. And so he comes back after this trip and he says, all right, guys, how'd you do? So the first guy, he's got five. He's like, all right, master, you gave me five. And I made five more. And he's like, great job. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And so he goes to the next guy. He's like, you gave me two. I gave you two more. He says, well done. Good and faithful servant. He goes to the last guy. You gave me one. And I gave, he didn't say that. He said, I buried it. And it didn't go so well for the last guy. He didn't say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Read it on your own. Didn't go so well for him. Here's what I want you to catch. God gave each one of these guys the chance for 100% success. The five guy produced five. He didn't ask the five guy to produce 10. He asked him according to his ability. The two guy produced two. He didn't ask the two to produce a five because he knew he wasn't able to do that. And the one guy, he didn't ask him to produce two. He just asked, he was expecting that. And so what I want you to know today, no matter where you're at, if you're a five-talent guy, if you're a two-talent guy, if you're a one-talent guy, God is never going to put on you this expectation to produce more than what he knows you have the ability to produce. And wherever you're at, as soon as the five guy turned it into that, he became a ten-talent guy. And now all of a sudden, he had the potential, according to this analogy, to become a twenty-talent guy. And so here's what we've got to understand. There are some things that God wants to give you, but he will not give it to you if you aren't faithful in the little that he's already given you. There are some doors that God wants to open for you that he will not open for you. Because you're sitting there, I'm a one-talent guy. I want to be a five-talent guy. God says, no, don't jump to the five. I've given you the ability to become a two-talent guy. But until you become a two-talent guy, you'll never become a four-talent guy. You'll never become an eight-talent guy. You'll never become a 16-talent. There are some things that God will not open for you until you're faithful in the little that he's already given you. Amen? Culture of faithfulness requires an after a long time. Now, our mission statement, we could say it this, this way. We read it last time. Let's do it together. Let's say it together. Here we go. Our mission is to see people far from God rescued with real life in Christ. Again, it doesn't matter how good our mission statement is or how bad it is if we don't participate in the mission. And so what we want to do as a church is give you a clear path for how you can participate here locally with this church and how you can get in the game. Of course, there are things that we do outside of this church. There may be things that God calls you to do on your own or with a group of friends. That's all fine. We're giving you the path for what it looks like to serve in this church, to serve one another, to serve through our outreach ministries. And here's what it looks like for us. 
You attend Discover the Journey because we want you to know who we are and we want to know who you are. You complete Discover the Journey. You become a regular giver. Why? Not because the church is living paycheck to paycheck and we need your money. We don't live that way. We're good stewards with the finances around here. We do that because Jesus said that there's a principle that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You can't tell me that your heart is in this church if your treasure isn't here. It's a flat-out principle of Jesus, and, and you can try to buck it all you want, but that's what Jesus said, all right? Number three, you begin serving. And when you do those things, those are all good measurements and good ways for us to participate in the game and to be faithful in those things. Now, statistics will say that the average church in America, only 20% are doing what I just said. Only 20% of the people are actively actively engaged. That means 80% of the church in America is not participating. They're not in the game. And let me just report to you, as I reported last week, our church is average. But how many of you guys know, I don't want to be an average church. That's why we're focusing on changing those numbers. We want to be a church that is fully engaged. We're not just going to measure attendance around here. We're going to measure engagement. And that's what this whole series is about, is about getting in the game. Imagine if there was, like, if your body only worked, like 20% of your body worked, and 80% of it wasn't cooperating. How many of you guys know you wouldn't make it very far? You wouldn't walk around very far? How many of you guys ever had your legs, like, fall asleep? You'd get up, and you'd, like, fall down and, like, break your neck or something. I mean, that's what it's like for the church. It's walking around not functioning fully. Uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I decided to sign up for a, a half marathon, and so I didn't have time to really train the way I should, and so I thought, I'll just hit the long runs on the weekends, because every, every time you train for a half marathon or a marathon, you, you do a lot of conditioning during the week, and then at the end of the week, you'll have a long run, and it keeps increasing and increasing until you finally hit race day. Well, I struggled to hit the long runs, but I finally made it to race day, and there I am, getting ready to run this race, Totally not conditioned or prepared for what I should be doing. And so I start off running. Everything's great. Everything's great. Get a few miles in. Pretty soon, my whole body just locks up. I'm dehydrated. It would not move. And I still have miles and miles to go. And so I'm just thinking, man, several thoughts running through my head. I should have trained. (laughs) That was one thought. My second thought was, my wife is behind me. I can't let her pass me. I'll never live that one down. How am I going to make it to the end? And so I started, you, you talk about power walking. I started power walking through that whole thing as much as I could. You never saw a better power walker for like eight miles. And so I'm power walking through this thing. And then all of a sudden I get to the finish line and I see all these people like slow motion, like cheering, Master Sean, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm power walking it in. And I'm like, I can't let them see me power walk this in. And so I mustered all the strength I had to try to run. And I'm running in, you know. And I'm running all the way in. I, you know, run across the finish line because I did not want them to think that I was power walking the whole time, that I was running it the whole time. And, and I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, that's what the church does a lot. That's what we do a lot, a lot of times as individuals. Most of the time, we're not really functioning in the body. We're not really participating with what God wants us to do in our life. But then there's this moment that becomes on display for everybody, and then we muster up our best run like we've been running the whole time. But in actuality, we haven't been in the game. That's not God's plan for our life. Journey Church has been placed here for a reason. We've been placed here to make a difference. We've been placed here to reach the lost, to equip the found. That's why we're here. And the problem is the reason why we don't always get in the game and the reason why we sit in the chair instead of getting in the game is really because of indifference. Because we've bought into this lie somewhere along the way that says it doesn't really matter. 
It doesn't matter if I'm serving. Somebody will do it. It doesn't matter. Uh, we bought into this lie that, that this gathering time isn't important anymore because we've listened to all this junk out there uh, that says that, you know, the church, uh, you know, you're just the church. You don't need the church. And we've listened to all this stuff. We bought into this lie. And we, we bought into this lie that it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter that this lie that individualism is just fine. This lie that I don't need accountability or I don't need to sacrifice. We bought into this lie that the power and presence of God doesn't have potential when we gather together, that it's just going through the motions. And the reason why is because that's our experience most of the time. But we bought into the lie, and so it starts to produce fruit in our church and in our life. But we've got to bust off that lie. We've got to bust off of that altogether. You know, we've lost the ability to see the big picture, I think is why. We think, man, if I go back there and I hold a baby for somebody, I mean, what good is that? It's because we've lost the heart of God. Because we've lost the big picture of what God can do through a simple act of serving somebody else. We, we've lost the, picture, the big picture of maybe that we're planting seeds in someone's life. Maybe, we're, we're, maybe we'll meet a friend that locks arms with us just by serving together that becomes a Paul or a Barnabas or a Timothy to us. We've lost the big picture. And it's all about us, and it's all about whether it's going to make a difference in my life. We've lost the big picture that by your faithfulness in serving and that which is little, it might inspire someone to be faithful in what God has called them to do. We've lost the big picture that, that you know, by, by holding someone's baby in the back, that it allows someone to be in here to maybe give their heart to Jesus or, or maybe to hear that encouraging word that they need this week that we don't even know what they're going through. And God, through his word and through the power of one moment, begins to plant a seed in their life that brings encouragement, that lifts them up, changes their course. We've lost the big picture. And when we lose, to, when we lose the big picture and we stop seeing from God's perspective, here's what also happens. We miss opportunities that God wants to set for us. When we have such a narrow view, what difference does it make? And we've bought into that lie. And here's what I want you to know. Every act of serving, every act of obedience, God can take that and turn it into an opportunity that you never saw coming. And so many times we're just waiting, just saying, well, that, I, that's not my gift. And that's not. We'll talk about going in your strength and in your lane. We'll talk about that later on. What we're talking about is having a culture about us that says, I get what God is doing here, and I get that it's not about me, and I get that I need to get in the game. And as I do that, God takes it, and he begins to multiply it for his glory. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect when we look at the Bible, and we see these people who, I was just meditating on this yesterday, the people that love not their lives even unto death. They were willing to lay their lives down. I was so humbled by just meditating on that and thinking, man, it's hard for me to let go of money and time sometimes. Loving my life, not, not loving my life even unto death. And so we can, it's so easy to disconnect from what the Bible is. And we're cheering these people on saying, yeah, that's a Jesus follower. That's a Jesus follower. And it never connects to my real life. And I never apply it to my real life. I never apply it to my lens that I see the world through. I never apply it to my relationships. I never apply it to how I see the world. And I cheer them on. You guys realize that's a disconnect? That's a huge disconnect. Let me ask you another question. This was a good exercise for me. If my name were to be listed in the Bible at the end of Colossians, and somebody were to explore my story, would they look at it and would they say, yeah, look at that guy, faithful, just faithfully committed? Or would they say, this guy's life doesn't resemble any of the other guys? And I think so many times we'd have to say that. We'd say, man, if my life was written about in the Bible, I'd look out of place. <laughs> and it's because we, we've got to get back to that place where we see things from God's perspective and we say, God, I'm all yours. All right, number two. That went over so well, I think I should keep going. So, um, number two, 
This one's even better than that one. So here it is. A culture of teachability. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to either way, but a culture of teachability. Do you know that there's a difference between teachability and acquiring knowledge? See, the internet's a great thing. We can get all these podcasts, we can get books, we can get blogs, we can get information, we can watch videos. The internet's great, but it's also horrible at the same time. Because what's happened is we, we go out and we get all this information, all this knowledge, all this knowledge. But just because you're getting knowledge does not mean you're a teachable, you have a teachable spirit at all. And I'll explain why in just a moment, but here's the, here's the truth of it. As soon as you don't like what that podcast is saying, you can turn it off and go listen to another person that tickles your ears. As soon as you don't like that book, you can put it down. You can get another one. As soon as you don't like that blog, you can shut that off and go follow somebody else. You guys know it's true, right? And so just because you're acquiring knowledge, you may look like you're growing spiritually. Look at how much they know. Look at how many podcasts are looking. Look at the blog things. Look at their book. And we can all fall into that trap of acquiring knowledge and yet still not having a teachable spirit about us. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, the first one, teaching. I think a lot of us, we, we want to have a teachable spirit. But, and I like that. I like to be taught some things. But how many of you guys like the next one? How many of you guys like to be rebuked? Anybody like to be rebuked? <laughs> I don't like to be rebuked, right? Or what about corrected? Corrected is a little bit different than rebuked. It's a little bit better, but I don't really like being corrected either, right? What about training? I, I like to be trained, so that's a little bit more positive. Here's the truth of the matter. You get to choose... You get to choose one of these. You get to choose what happens. You get, to choose, you get to determine how you learn. You can either have a teachable spirit and be taught, but if you don't have a teachable spirit, you might end up getting rebuked. You might end up getting corrected, or you might have to be trained or retrained. But we get to choose how we learn. And so we've got to understand that. If you're not teachable, it might end up in being rebuked. Believe me, it happens to me more than I want to admit, Okay. I understand this well enough, all right? Knowledge, it says, Scripture says, knowledge puffs up, but love, what? Builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So you may look like you're growing, but if it doesn't work itself out in real relationship, and here's the difference. You can get all this knowledge out there, but all throughout Scripture, anytime there was anointing transferred, anytime there was a spiritual gift transferred, anytime there was a, a stirring up of gifts or any of that, it was all represented by this strange act of laying on of hands. And so they may pray for somebody. This impartation would happen through the laying on of hands. What was that representing? It was representing relationship. It was saying, I am close. See, teachability requires proximity. You have to be close to people to have a teachable spirit. You cannot have a teachable spirit through random knowledge. You can only have a teachable spirit through relationship. That's the way it's set up in Scripture. Study it out for yourself if you don't believe me. And you have to invite that into your life. You have to invite that into your life. Because like I said, you can shut off the podcast. That's not a teachable spirit. You, you can shut off the, the relationship. You can shut off all these things. But a teachable spirit requires a relationship. It's relational. It's accountability. It's all of those things. And when we disconnect ourselves from relationship, we disconnect ourselves from accountability. Because you don't have to be accountable if all you got is the internet. You don't have to be accountable. 
But I'm telling you, if you get in this room with these people and you start doing life with one another, how many of you guys know you have to work things out relationally, don't you? And then teachability happens through that. There was a study done in 1961 by a, a Yale professor, and he was really concerned by the Holocaust, obviously, and all those. He, he was mainly like pondering, like, how did all these people participate in this and not have a conscience to stop it? How did they do this? Why, what would drive all these people to do this? I mean, I can understand a person or two or a handful of bad apples, but what would, it, what would cause a whole bunch of people to participate in this? And so we wanted to do a study. And as he began to research this, he began to interview people, and they began to say things like, well, we were just doing what we were told. What do you expect? We were doing what we were told. We had to do it because that's what we were told. And so he decides to set up an experiment to test this out in 1961. And so what he did is he invited an all-call to volunteers, 160 volunteers. And as they came in, they had a team of scientists. And one of the people who came in, they were going to do two people at a time. One of the people was going to be a teacher, and one was going to be the student. Uh, And they would come in, and they would draw what what role they had. But the problem was, the the setup was, the, the teacher was one of the scientists, or the student, excuse me, it was one of the scientists. And so they'd have the, the volunteer who was, didn't know what was going on. He would draw out of the hat what his role was, but they all said teacher. <laughs> so he thought it was completely random, and he's like, oh, okay, I'm the teacher. And this would happen time and time again. And so here was the experiment. They had a control panel, simulated a bunch of switches, and this was to simulate an electrical shock that would increase with each switch that was flown, increase in intensity. And so, uh, and it had a label over them that would say something like light shock, mild shock, uh, strong shock, stronger, intense, you know, it just kept going up. And the last one was like X, 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 basically like you're dead, you know, if you receive this shock. And so they had the teacher who was the random volunteer and and they were just sitting in front of this and the, the student was to sit beside them. And anytime the student got a question wrong or refused to answer a question, they were to flip one of the switches, and it would keep increasing in shock as they went along. And they were trying to determine how far would this teacher, this random person, go just by orders to inflict pain on someone else. It was kind of a really disturbing uh, study. And so they, the first way they did this, they did this four ways. The first way they did this is the teacher would have to sit there, and each time that, that there would be a, a shock, he would have to move the hand of the student and place it on the shocking device to be able to administer the shock. And in that first test, 70% of them very quickly tapped out and said, I just cannot do it. And they said, no, you have to do it because of the experiment. And they said, I just can't do it. 70% of them quit very early on. They just could not do it. So they moved the test, and they put the student across the room where they could still see them, but they weren't as close. And the same thing would happen. They'd say, I, I can't, I got to stop. And the, t- the st- scientists would say, no, you got to keep continuing. 60% very quickly tapped out and they said, I cannot continue. I just can't, with my conscience, I can't, I'm inflicting pain. And the student was supposed to act like this was causing a lot of pain, like help, I'll stop, you know, all that stuff. And so then they moved it to where they moved the student into another room where they couldn't see them, they could only hear them. And at each time, it would inflict shock that was supposed to be increasing in intensity. And you could hear the person in the other room saying, let me out. Stop. Stop. I mean, just going crazy. As it, and people would say, no, i, I got to stop. And the scientists would say, no, you must continue for the, for, the, for the experiment. And they would have to keep going. I, you must continue. And then finally, the last one, the last experiment is they put them in a room where they could no longer hear them. All they could hear was banging on the wall each time with intensity. They said when they got to that far experiment, 
65% of the people, even though they, were, uh, they tried to tap out four different times, 65% of the people went all the way up to the triple X, essentially, in their minds, inflicting enough pain to kill them. 65%. That's baffling, isn't it? All because of just simply following orders because there was a disconnect with the people that they were inflicting the pain on. And here's what they concluded. They said, when we cannot see, when we cannot see the impact of our decisions, when disconnected from people, 65% have the capacity to kill someone when we are disconnected from people. So why do I bring that all up for us when we're talking about teachability? When we are disconnected from relationships, and it's all a disconnect, and it's all things we can't see, it's all online, it's all through a book, it's all through a blog, it's all through whatever, it's all through a podcast, it's all through a video, it's all, when we are disconnected from the people face to face, we also disconnect ourselves from real teachability and accountability because we no longer have to suffer those consequences of being responsible for what we've heard. So I'd say be careful how much knowledge you accumulate because the Bible warns about accumulating knowledge and not acting on it because when we just accumulate knowledge without a teachable spirit, what we have is we have, we've become hearers of the word but not doers of the word. Teachability in our culture, in our church, becomes, becomes paramount for every single one of us. And we, just, and we only become teachable when we invite teachability. How many of you guys have a hard time inviting somebody to correct you, inviting somebody to expose different areas of your life? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to invite that. Because why? It does not happen unless it's invited through relationships. And the moment we say, no, I'm good. I've got all this knowledge out here. We've removed ourselves from a teachable spirit. 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. So we have all these teachers out there. What he's saying is, there are some people in your life that you are in relationship because you're in relationship. And I think a, a, a symptom of our culture today in church world is we have many guides, but we don't have many fathers. We have many, uh, uh, we have a lot of knowledge, but we don't have a lot of people to walk that out with us where we are forced to walk that out in accountability. All right, last one, I'm, I'm running out of time. Culture of honor is the third one, a culture of honor. The power of the Holy Spirit is hindered when we stop honoring one another. It happened to Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57 and 58, it says, uh, and they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except, except when he's in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. See, even Jesus couldn't do much when there was a lack of honor. Even Jesus couldn't do any miracles when there was a lack of honor. You see, when we dishonor one another, we stop the flow of the Holy Spirit in our church. We stop the flow of the Holy Spirit in our relationships. We stop the flow of the Holy Spirit in our marriages. We stop the flow of the Holy Spirit in, in our families whenever we walk in a culture that has no honor. See, let me tell you what honor is. Honor is not an action. Honor is an attitude towards one another. Honor is a lot like love. You, you can't you can't demand it, but you have to give it. Even if, even if the other person isn't deserving of honor, we still honor one another because of that. Uh, honor is, you know, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. 
Obey them, for you, you will have a long life if you obey them. How many of you guys are grown, you're out of the house, and you still obey your parents? Anybody? No, I, I don't. I don't. I'm grown. I, some of you guys do? Wow. Uh, I don't, okay? I'm, I'm the rebel child. I don't know. I don't obey my parents, but I do believe the Bible still requires me to honor them. Because honor is not an action. Honor is an attitude. Even if my parents, you know, you say, well, my, my father's not honorable or my mother did this. Honor's not an action. It's an attitude. We can still honor them and show honor to them even if they're not honorable. You may say, my spouse is not showing very much honor. They're not an honorable person. Well, you begin to honor them and they rise up to the level of your honor. And in our relationships one with another, when we become so familiar with one another that we start to devalue one another and we stop honoring, when we uh, start to see each other according to the flesh and according to our sinfulness instead of seeing one another according to the Spirit, it's easy for us to walk in dishonor towards one another. And if you're like me, there's many times in my life when I have to go back and take a step back and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not honoring right now. I have to do it all the time. And so I want us to stand up as we get ready to close. I'm going to tell you one more story as you're standing up. Years ago, when I was a teenager in youth ministry, in the youth group, I had a pastor, Pastor Tom. And he was my pastor growing up. And eventually he went and he left that youth ministry, went on to another, and I became the youth pastor. But it was in the culture of that church that you always said pastor in front of the pastor's name. Have you guys have been to one of those churches? It's always pastor so-and-so. There was never a time where I did not say pastor Tom. It was always pastor Tom. Now, that's not our culture here. You don't have to go around calling me bishop or anything like that. But that's the way it was in this culture. It was Pastor Tom. And so when I became the youth pastor and we became peers with one another, we were friends and in relationship with one another, one, another, one of the hardest things for me to do was to, because I wasn't required to, it wasn't even always appropriate to continue to call him Pastor Tom because we were into a different relationship. But because I had so much honor for him, there was something about letting go of that that would feel dishonorable to me. And so many of the times now when I talk about him or I talk to him even, it's, I still say that because I have so much honor there, you know. And, and I think it's, again, it's not about a title. It's when we see one another according to the Spirit. And we begin to see our worth according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And I find ways to honor you. You find ways to honor me. You find ways to honor your spouse or your, your kids even. This is part of the culture, the locker room culture that makes us faithful, makes us teachable, and makes us have, be people of honor. So as you cl close your uh, eyes, bow your heads just real quick, I'm going to ask you three questions. Here they are. Am I faithful or have I ran away? Am I a teachable or am I just accumulating knowledge? Do I show honor or have I become too familiar? And if any of these start to, you see an adjustment need to be made, let me just be real transparent with you guys. I, I have that happen to me all the time and where I need to push the reset button in my heart and my culture again. Say, God, I can see how I've drifted way off. And Lord, please reset my faithfulness, that culture of faithfulness. Reset that culture of teachability in my heart so that I, I, I don't, think just because I have knowledge that I got it all and I, I, I reset that again. Reset that honor so that I see people according to the spirit instead of according to the flesh. And I would just invite you to take just a moment and allow that reset to happen if, if the Holy Spirit is dealing with you in any one of those areas. 
And Lord, I pray as we're doing that, that each person here would see themselves as a valuable member of your body. That they would see that even if they don't make the buzzer winning shot, their names are still written in the book of life and they still have a story and that it takes a team to win. Lord, I pray that you would see, help to, them to see their immense value and worth that they have before you. And even in those unseen things, that those are the things that will be celebrated in heaven. And Lord, for that, we celebrate you right now and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's honor Jesus one more time. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.